Hi, podcast listeners. I wanted to apologize for the website craziness the last few weeks. Many of you might have noticed that when you went to download an episode from the Year of Polygamy podcast, our servers were a little bit overwhelmed. That's great news because it means the podcast is more popular than ever. It also means we've had to migrate our server. I want to personally thank Adam Groves for doing that for us. So give Adam all the praise. Send all your blessings in good faith to Adam Groves across the interwebs. This feels like a really great time to ask you listeners to commit to making a donation to the Year of Polygamy podcast. I am not as good as other podcasts at asking for money. I need to be better. Something I still struggle with. Because this podcast costs money to run, host, and produce, hundreds of hours go into it. I travel all the time now to different communities, meeting with different people. It takes a lot of time and energy. It's changed my life. I would love to do it full time, but alas, for as popular as the podcast is, it's not in the cards. So I have to do this on the side, and I have to run a full-time job and raise my kids. If everyone that listened to this paid for their downloads, I could do this full-time. But a girl can dream. So consider a donation at yearpolygamy.com, or you can start paying per episode on Patreon. Become a Patreon subscriber by going to patreon backslash yearpolygamy.com. Those are two ways that you can give a one-time contribution or become a monthly subscriber. Thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. And just as a note, we're running the music contest for the bumper of this podcast. We have three fantastic selections that you can vote for. Go to yearofpolygamy.com, click on the music contest link, and vote for what you think the opening music should be. We're going to keep the contest open through April 1st. Thanks to all who submitted. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today, if the audio sounds strange, it's because I am right now, at this very moment, sitting in a room full of people. Can we all hear you guys? Hello. Yeah, it's a room full of people. It's really large. Lots and lots of people. Um, we're actually here at Written Vision, uh, the bookstore in Provo, for a special live interview of the podcast. I am here with William Victor Smith who is a historian and has written probably the most comprehensive uh, work on DNC 132 that exists. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it's kind of embarrassing because on my podcast I'm always like, and you wrote the book on 132, but you really did write the book on 132, so that joke never gets old. So uh, can I, would you... Can I call you Bill, William? What are your most comfortable? Bill's fine. So, Bill, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background before we get into the book? Oh, okay. Uh, as an undergraduate, I was uh, a history major and a philosophy major and a math major. And uh, when it came to graduate school, which was really about the only opportunity at that point in my life, so I... None of those things were marketable as an undergraduate, so I had to pick some kind of a graduate education. And so I picked the one where I thought I could get a job, and so I became a mathematician. But I never gave up history. Uh, Davis Bitten was kind of my mentor a little bit in school, and uh, and so I... Uh, I uh, kept that in the back of my head for a long time. And then he wrote me an email uh, some years ago, uh, about 10 years before he died, I think, and said, why aren't you doing history? And I said, well, 
I'm doing something else. And he said, uh, you ought to turn around and do that. So I have spent most of my wife's spare time doing history the last uh, decade or two. Uh, so uh, thanks to her for letting me do that. Uh, so it's been fun. I've met a lot of uh, renewed acquaintances with uh, historians and met a lot of new ones and and uh, made a lot of friends at libraries and things like that that I hadn't before. Uh, so yeah, it's been a, kind of exciting. And this was a kind of an outgrowth of... Uh, I'm a blogger at uh, By Common Consent, and uh, this was this book is actually kind of Brad's fault. Uh, he left the room... Uh, but it's his fault uh, because he's the one that uh, suggested that I had to do it because uh, I'd written some stuff for the blog about it. And and he said, well, there's a book in there. Why don't you do it? And so I was in the middle of another project, but I did this one instead. So, so we have a lot of non-Mormon listeners. So this is going to seem strange to this audience who I assume. Is there anyone here that has never been Mormon in our audience today? Except for you, you don't count. <laughs> She's Catholic. We don't claim her. Um, I do. <laughs> that's good. Uh, so can you explain, even when we talk about DNC 132, I think this will come out later on, but uh, give us just like a brief overview of why you would write an entire book on this particular revelation. And what, I guess, for those who don't know, you should know by now, the Doctrine and Covenants are basically a collection of revelations from our early church leaders and DNC 132 is what this book is about. Right. Uh, so Section 132 is one of the many revelations that uh, uh, were, was dictated by Joseph Smith, the founder of uh, the LDS Church. And uh, it came about uh, due to some, some interesting and complex circumstances, as most of his revelations did. Uh, this one resulted uh, because... Uh, and you guide me here if I'm going off track. Uh, it, it came about because uh, his brother uh, was familiar with uh, Joseph Smith's wife's reluctance to uh, participate or be a part of polygamy, which was something that uh, he had introduced uh, in uh, the final years of his life uh, between 1839 and 1844. There were some earlier instances of polygamy, but uh, I don't talk about those in the book. Uh, his brother suggested that if he dictated a revelation, that he could use this revelation to convince his wife of the advantages of plural marriage. And so uh, he did this. Uh, uh, with one of his clerks, and and uh, his brother Hiram took this uh, dictated document uh, to Joseph Smith's wife. She was uh, not happy about it at all, and uh, but anyway, that's how it came about. Uh, and I go through this in the book, but in my opinion, this is a one of the most important ways to look at this document is a uh, or can I use the technical word hermeneutic it's it's a the way to think about or one way to think about this is a is that it was a document that was for a purpose it's a document dictated in 1843 and it is an 1843 document 
I emphasize that for reasons we'll probably get into later, but uh, but it, it, it the contents of the document it is fairly long for one of Joseph Smith's revelations, not the longest, but it's fairly long. Uh, the content can be interpreted, can be thought of in terms of its purpose, which was to convince uh, Joseph Smith's wife uh, about polygamy. So the different topics that flow through, the themes that flow through the Revelation uh, can all be thought of in those terms. And I think they can make sense in those terms. It's not the only way to look at it, and it's not the only way I look at it in the book. But it's one way. And if you read the Revelation, and that's another reason for writing a book, is most, while it's very important historically and uh, theologically, it's not often read now. Uh, and so if you do read the Revelation, if you look through the themes of the Revelation, uh, you'll see that, uh, I think, you'll see that if you think about it in terms of how can I convince this person about this uh, document came from God that it was divinely uh, given, then I think you'll maybe you'll understand better the talk, topics that occur and why they occur and the order in which they occur. So that's sort of a little bit of background. I don't know if I went where you No, that, that's okay. So to reiterate, what you're saying is basically this revelation is what we sort of flippantly call the, the polygamy revelation, the plural marriage revelation. It's affected uh, so much in Mormonism, in, in modern Mormonism and in frontier Mormonism. And, you know, it really did have an impact on Joseph Smith and his personal life himself. One thing I appreciated about what you just said is you mentioned that the way that this revelation came about was a little bit unusual. So I want to get in the history of this revelation, but before we do that, can you just give us a brief overview of what would a typical revelation that Joseph Smith included in the Doctrine and Covenants, how would that normally come about? So usually those the revelations came about because of some circumstance, a question somebody had, or a series of questions, or, uh, for instance, uh, Zion was probably uh, the big issue for Joseph Smith up and up through 1838, and uh, so for those eight years of the beginning of the church to 1838, a lot of his revelations have some impact or discussion about the nature of a living Zion, a, a Zion to be established by people. And uh, so those those revelations come about as sometimes technical questions. Uh, how do we deal with property in Zion? Those kinds of things. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of times they're, they're practical issues. Sometimes they're more eschatological. What's the end of the world like kind of thing? People are always curious about that. Uh, another revelation that gets paired with this one, section 132, is section 110 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is a vision narrated by Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, who saw this vision in the temple in Kirtland in 1836. And this revelation often gets paired with section 132, because uh, one of the figures that appears in this vision in 1836 is is Elijah, and 
and Joseph Smith develops a, a, a theology around Elijah that eventually matures into something that is connected to the topics in section 132, namely the idea of sealing or binding people together forever kind of thing. Uh, marriage, uh, adopting one person to another, those kinds of things. Uh, so Joseph Smith develops an, a gradually an expansive point of view about what happened to this vision. In the beginning, it seems like uh, it was the information about it was not distributed, was not public. Uh, it, uh, the vision I'm talking about, certainly this one was not public, uh, very noised around, but not public. The 110 revelation, section 110, was not noised around either for some reason. But the people who do talk about it, and primarily I'm thinking about uh, Joseph Smith's sidekick, uh, William W. Phelps, he interprets it at the time, the contemporary interpretation was, this is a thing that tells us that the end of the world is near. Uh, And he quotes a bit from the narration of this vision about it's near, even at the doors kind of thing. So the way they interpreted this uh, at the time seems to be something that went along with their millennialism which was a very powerful thing in uh, Mormonism at the time. And that gradually changes, and uh, uh, at the end, with the end of Zion in 1838, uh, things get repurposed, and, and the, Elijah, the Elijah experience gets repurposed or reinterpreted or expand, more expansively interpreted maybe. Uh, and explain to people what that is, who might not know what that is. So the, the Elijah revelation is uh, a revelation where El- Elijah himself comes and quotes from the book of Malachi, <clears throat> saying that uh, you know the end of the world is near, and uh, I'm going. You need to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers, and the fathers to the children, kind of thing. And quoting from the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, and uh, so. This is interpreted at the time as simply an announcement that the end of the world is near, but later on it becomes this turning hearts to fathers to children becomes an issue about uh, how, do we, how do we evangelize the dead? Isn't it important to evangelize the dead? And how do we do this? And how do we make it effective? And how do we connect ourselves to them? Because the, the, the text seems to indicate that that's important. We need to connect ourselves to the fathers the father's connected to us somehow and so this idea of sealing comes through that notion of connecting to the fathers and that's how it connects with section 132 thank you so i see the doctrine and covenants personally and i and i mean the lds version of the doctrine and covenants is sort of a relic of how joseph smith would have run the church uh, the early church. And I think especially modern LDS folks, we, you know, my experience, we come into a church that almost feels fully formed. I was sort of taught this idea that we had all the truth, all the restored truth. But Joseph Smith wouldn't have seen it that way. And I think it's hard for LDS people to remember that, that the DNC to me is him really experimenting and building on his church. And you can see him adding to it. And like you said, it's expansive, it's growing. And that wouldn't have been a problem for early saints. That's was one of the exciting things about the church. Uh, so one of the things that you, that you mentioned in this is how he talks about Emma specifically. And again, we'll get into this revelation. Can you talk about how Joseph sometimes uses these revelations to address specific individuals? 
Uh, yeah, especially early on in his career, he uses uh, uh, people want to know what they're supposed to do. There's this new revelation. Uh, and how does that impact my life? What, what am I supposed to do? And can you ask God what I'm supposed to do? And he often he does this. And uh, so some of the early earlier texts in Revelation texts are about those kinds of individual requests. Uh, how do I what am I supposed to do? How do I act? What's my duty? What's my mission kind of thing? Uh, that was an early trope in among revelations uh, of Joseph Smith. Later on, they become more expansive. What does this group do? What does that group do? How do what do I mean by priesthood? Uh, how do I interpret this? What are priesthood offices? How do people in the church uh, define themselves? How are they supposed to act? What do we do on Sunday? That was a big issue. Uh, those kinds of things. So the, the approach, starting with person-to-person kind of thing, and then reach out to institutional issues. So in some ways, it was sort of an early manual on how to do Mormonism. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, and I just want to recognize that as we're talking about Mormonism, uh, there's a lot of different Mormon groups, including the Community of Christ, who don't use the term Mormon, uh, who have a Doctrine and Covenants, who have a lot of these early revelations, and then some of them add to it. The LDS Church, when would you say was the last time the LDS Church added a revelation into the Doctrine and Covenants? Uh, Strictly speaking, as a revelation, probably uh, Brigham Young's revelation gets added 1876, I think. and then there are some older texts that get added in later in uh, the 1980s, I think, uh, 1981, uh, some older texts of Joseph Smith's that are actually important in relative to Section 132. And then there's a text from uh, 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 his nephew, Joseph F. Smith, uh, which he announced in 1918 that finally ended up in the uh, as in the canonical book and in your research can you speak to anything about the process of why something would be allowed versus something not allowed in and again we're i'm assuming we're talking about the lds dnc uh the first successfully published collection of joseph smith's revelation was 1835 and the 1835 uh, publication was a was a kind of it was administered by committee. So the committee got together, they edited the texts of the revelations, uh, made them uh, maybe a little bit more grammatical, clarified ideas in some cases, uh, a little bit of expansion. Sometimes a lot of expansion occurred. Sometimes changes, contractions, but there was an editing process they went through, and it was largely by committee. Uh, so this revelation committee put the put the documents together. It was published in 1835, and this was the process. They went through a kind of an editing process, and uh, so that was the big edition of Joseph Smith's revelations. He has revelations after that, but by far the bulk of his written revelations are pre 1835, even before 1833. And so. and just to be clear, this revelation hadn't occurred yet, so that wasn't included in the original. No, it doesn't show up uh, in Mormon canonical texts until 1876. Yeah, and we can talk about that. So let's get let's dive into the actual revelation itself. First, I want to talk about 
the context behind the revelation, what prompts it. You spoke to this a little bit. The different manuscripts, what happens with that? And then we can talk about what's actually in the revelation. So manuscripts, uh, the original manuscript, uh, we don't have. Uh, The stories that are told about it are that it was destroyed by Joseph Smith's wife. Uh, However, almost immediately after the original manuscript was penned by his clerk, William Clayton. It was a th- he's, Clayton says later on that it was about a three-hour process to write this down. So they were working at it. It wasn't just spilling it out in, in, as fast as it could go or anything like that. It was considered. And then uh, after it's written down, uh, it's handed off to one of Joseph Smith's uh, uh, very close friends, uh, one of the bishops of the church, the, sec- uh, the second ordained bishop in the church, uh, uh, Newell Whitney. And Newell is invested in this process of polygamy because he has, uh, his daughter has married Joseph Smith polygamously uh, the previous year. And, uh, and, uh, so Whitney wants a copy of this, and he had a habit of connecting, uh, collecting manuscript copies of Joseph Smith's Revelation. We have a, a fairly important collection of his uh, at BYU Library uh, of his copies of Joseph Smith's Re- manuscript copies of his Revelations. So, yeah, so uh, Whitney gets the Revelation. Joseph hands it off to him, or Hiram does, and uh, he has Whitney has one of his clerks. Uh, Joseph Kingsbury copy the Revelation. And the Kingsbury copy is the earliest manuscript copy we have of the Revelation. This is kind of typical for Joseph Smith's Revelations. We don't have any, we might have one or two original manuscripts of Joseph Smith's Revelations, but mostly we have copies of them. The originals don't survive. So let me let me interject and ask a question about that because this process that you're talking about becomes controversial especially in modern LDS Mormonism where there's this push to sort of reinvent or bring back the story that Joseph didn't practice polygamy so we don't have a lot of contemporary records of Joseph Smith saying you are right I'm a polygamist this happened and some of the people who follow who ascribe to that belief use this doc this uh text as an example. We don't have it in Joseph's hand. It's written by Joseph Kingsbury after the fact. It doesn't make it into the doctrine, the LDS Doctrine and Covenants until the 70s, 1870s, you know, like well over 30 years after it happened. So what, what would you say to critics who say it delegitimizes this practice that maybe plural marriage was an invention? Uh well, it is kind of an invention, but uh, I think that... Uh, <laughs> I guess uh, I meant of later prophets, but yes, good point. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I don't talk about that too much in the book because I take the point of view that it's a foregone conclusion that he's connected with it. The reason for that is, is the contemporary documents that are around that we have access to. Uh, mostly that's William Clayton's journal. Uh, William Clayton was uh, was an early clerk of, well, uh, beginning 1842, a clerk of Joseph Smith's. And he became very close to Joseph Smith, and they shared a lot of secrets between each other. Maybe that's the way to put it. 
But uh, yeah, Joseph tells him about his adventures in polygamy to some degree, and uh, and vice versa, because he involves Clayton in polygamy as well. And uh, Clayton takes this very seriously. He writes about it extensively in his journal. And I think I trust him. And so I think that, uh, yeah, this is a thing that Joseph is, Joseph is in. He's into it. And he's recruiting other people to it. And maybe you can speak to this other question. Why would it have been important to have Joseph write it down? Why is something written down in his hand or the revelation recorded? Why is that important? Why wasn't it enough for for any Mormon, I guess, just to know that Joseph said it? Uh, that's a really interesting question. And do you want me to go on about two or three hours about it? <laughs> uh, I do, but I, I don't know that we have time for that. So... Uh, yeah, so uh, let me see if I can compress my thoughts. Uh, so let me give you an example. Uh, during the 19th century, uh, Mormon women often participated in things that we now think of as, as strictly male activities, like blessing other people or anointing them or those types of activity, uh, prophesying about them. Uh, that kind of thing. It was a, it was a really a kind of based on this sort of New Testament idea about those who received the Spirit were to do these acts, these spiritual acts. And Mormon women took this seriously, uh, especially the earlier Mormon women that were involved in the church from earlier days. But certainly even in Nauvoo, this was a fairly common practice, these kinds of these acts, these spiritual ordinances, if you will, or almost sacraments. These are, women are participating in this, and it's very important. Usually it's women to women, but it can also be, be, women might bless by the laying on of hands. They might bless men. So it went both ways. Uh, But there's no text about this. That is, Joseph never dictated a text, a revelation text, that said, yeah, this is a... That we know of, right. Yeah, right. yeah, when I say never, it means... I'm still crossing my fingers at something in somebody's (laughs) attic somewhere. (laughs) There's the Relief Society Minute book, but it was kind of suppressed for a long time. Uh, So, uh, yeah, so it, 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 it... That comes around to the 1920s. Think of a century ahead. And... We have these, you know, men that are, men and women that are involved in the early, early founding era of the church, and they're dying. So by the time the turn of this, the end of the long 19th century, is the way historians would say, you know, into the 1920s, at the end of this, most of those people, if not all of them, there are a few left, I think, but most of those people are gone. The memory has disappeared about why it was done. What's the justification for this kind of act? And so tradition is still going on, and uh, women are blessing other women, say, in the temple, that kind of thing. And But now people are looking at this, and why are we doing this? 
where's the justification with this? It's just some kind of a habit that developed, and we can't find any reason for it. And do we really need to do it? And the answer was no, then. They decided, no, we don't need to, because the, the issue was text, always text, no text. So it was pushed away. So, which isn't exclusive. That's to exactly the same right? thing. Yeah, exactly that thing with the polygamy, or or even sealing. If there was no text, it would have died. I'm sure. Quickly. And that's interesting because in Mormonism we have this what I call a loophole, theological loophole, which is continuing revelation. Right. So theoretically, we should be able to have someone add something new or bring something back. But I think you're right. I think that we're very concerned with what's in the you know documentation, and those, that's the majority of the discussions I have online about polygamy now. Anyway, is where are the firsthand sources, where are the contemporary sources? So, one thing that I really, really appreciate about your book is you spend a lot of time focusing on Emma, her reactions to this, her feelings on this, and I have to say that I you know I study this topic a lot, and aside from her biography. This is probably one of the most, um, what's the word I want? I, I just, I feel like you gave her, you talked about her with the affection and endearment that, that I appreciated because, of course, this revelation is directed towards her. I think people listening to this that have never heard this story before might be surprised to know that Emma Smith might have destroyed a revelation that her husband gave. So can you, I know a lot of people in this room might have heard that story, but just repeat the, the basic story again, um, which is we know that Emma was unhappy with these rumors of plural marriage, and Joseph needed to find a way to convince her. Is that a fair framing of it? Right. Well, uh, he, he, he hoped to convince her. It is, it's his brother that initiates the text. So his brother says, if you'll dictate a text... This will be a powerful totem, if you will, because a revelation text was a really important thing in early Mormonism. Uh, still would be. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so he's, he's trying to convince his brother that if he dictate, di- dictates a text and it comes out in a way tailored to his wife, Emma, it, Hiram says, if I, I can take this, I can show her that that this is really right. Uh, Hiram is an interesting character because he gets introduced to this out of a, in a different way. Uh, he's not approached by his brother to uh, take other wives. Uh, he's approached by his brother from a different angle. Uh, Hiram had already had his first wife die, Jerusha, uh, Barden was his first wife. She she was now dead. He remarried uh, Mary Fielding. And Joseph approaches him through the angle of, don't you want your family, your first family, to be with you in the hereafter as well as your present one? And Hiram, he buys into that. That's important. Uh, that feels good to him. And uh, so... He talks about this in public, that this idea of sealing, he doesn't talk about polygamy, not living polygamy, okay? This sort of dead polygamy becomes important later, but uh, he he expresses his 
gratitude for this idea that he would be assured of being with his first wife and family in the hereafter somehow, uh, connected to them in a kind of familiar familiar way. So, yeah, so he's he's bought into this through that angle. Even so, and it's important, like you said, he struggled with it first. So he understands in a way, in the way that a man can versus a woman, the apprehension to this practice. But now that he's sold on it, he's sold and he wants to help Joseph perhaps maybe make his life a little easier. Uh, Yeah. So Joseph, Joseph is sort of convinced by his brother, I think. His brother was a convincing person. He was well known as a as a fine persuader, and uh, so he he does a, tries to do a double persuasion. And those are, I like to call them the Utah Smiths because those are the Smiths we got. So. Right. I am not connected to them, by the way. I was going to ask. <laughs> not that I wouldn't like to. Not yet. Yeah. That's what the sealing practices right. are for. <laughs> so so. They bring this route. Joseph dictates it. Who is he dictating it to? You you briefly mentioned this, but... Dictates it to his uh, sort of insider clerk, one of them, uh, William Clayton. And William Clayton, we know this, has been writing about this in his diary. Uh, and so we know a lot of the story from William Clayton's diary. Joseph presents the revelation to Emma, and what happens? Uh, she is disgusted by it, doesn't like it. Uh, and uh, they come back. The story runs different ways. Depends on what sources you look at and when those sources are dictated. But it's the story seems to be that after this experience of of uh, inter, you know, having this interview with Emma about the revelation, that the revelation either the next day or later that day is copied by. Joseph Kingsbury. So that's the one that we still have. It's in his handwriting. I checked the handwriting. It's Kingsbury's handwriting. And I would recommend, you know, you go into a lot more detail in the book. So if you want to know the ins and outs of the the details and the dates and some of the sources, your bibliography is really great, too, which is how, you know, it's a good book in Mormon stories if it has a great bibliography. Um, So she destroys it. She struggles with it. Let's talk about what is in the Revelation. What, and actually, before we, we do that, I had a question about it, because you opened the, this, your book with a discussion of the priesthood offices, which is interesting, because I've really only looked at this revelation as the marriage revelation. But you tie it at the very beginning to priesthood offices. So can you sort of explain that for us, how this revelation ties into the priesthood? Uh, it tries in several ways. Probably the most uh, evident way at the beginning is is this idea of sealing. Uh, sealing is something that comes into church practice in the early 1830s. By 1831, uh, Joseph introduces, June of 1831, Joseph introduces a new priesthood office, high priest. And one of the primary duties of high priest, as it is narrated at the time, is to seal people to eternal life, seal people up to eternal life. And they do. They go out and do this, not just individuals, but maybe whole church branches, seal them up to eternal life. The definition of eternal life is maybe not the same then as it, as it evolves 
in section 132 kind of language. You have a whole section where you cover this, but can you maybe just give us a, a teaser about that? Yeah. Okay. Well, Take your whole chapter <laughs> and give me two sentences. So this kind of, this ceiling narrative uh, gets expanded. It gets expanded within uh, a new priesthood office called Patriarch. And Patriarchs, the first Patriarch is Joseph Smith's father. And uh, he's, uh, he engages in this practice of sealing people to eternal life. The purpose of a patriarch, at least in the beginning, was to uh, comfort the fatherless. So uh, Joseph Smith Sr. is blessing, uh, blessing people whose fathers are dead, uh, parents are gone. Uh, that was the initial thing, but everybody else gets in it too. Uh, and one of the things he, uh, you can look at his early blessings, and one of the one of the things he does is he seals people to eternal life at the end. So it's this high priesthood thing. The patriarchal office is part of the high priesthood. The high priest. Well, that's a, another terminological thing. When you read the Doctrine and Covenants, if you have a, if you're a Mormon and you have a copy of the Doctrine and Covenants, you read through it, you see the words high priesthood. That doesn't have anything to do with the later concept. Well, it's connected, but doesn't have any primary thing to do with the later concept of Melchizedek priesthood. Okay, high priesthood is a term that refers to this new office, high priest. So, uh, when you're reading the Revelations, you can look th- you, as you encounter those terms. Uh, you you know what they refer to historically. Those things get reinterpreted later on, but originally that's what the high priesthood meant, the office of high priest. These are the sealers, if you will. Then the patriarchs sort of take this th- uh, to a ne- another level. So this this whole progress to, and then Joseph becomes the president of the high priesthood uh, the year after the office is introduced. So he becomes he becomes the head high priest, and uh, and so I call this whole thing that leads that kind of drifts through the 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 ecclesial history of the church up through the time the revelation is given. I call that the high priesthood cycle. Okay. There's another cycle that's important with regard to the Revelation, that's what I call the apostolic cycle. Okay, that's not connected to this idea of sealing early on, but later on it becomes connected to it. I don't know if I went where you wanted me to go. No, that's great. So, and I think that this is important because it actually reading this made me rethink what I knew about polygamy and this Revelation. So we often say, you know, especially as Mormon feminists, that Polygamy is tied into the temple, and polygamy is tied into the garments and, and to the endowment. But you really made me think of a way that the priesthood becomes necessary for this practice and just how the two interact. And so is, is there anything else you want to say about how, why it would be important for Joseph to set up a precedent for the priesthood for this revelation? Uh, he's, he eventually becomes the head high priest, and so he's in charge of this this idea of sealing, and part of what this revelation is about, and part of its attraction maybe to Emma, is this idea of being sealed to loved ones. That is, to have a kind of stamp of approval, a guarantee that you'll be together in the afterlife. Your present familiar revelations will continue forever. And this is an attractive thing. It was attractive to Hiram, and and I think... 
people naturally assumed that it would be attractive to Emma. And, and, but she is, pushes that to the side because of the aspect of polygamy in the Revelation. So, uh, yeah, but it's important. This idea of sealing is very important. But it's a subtext to the Revelation. It's not the primary point. So let me ask you this. If we didn't have DNC 132 in our canon at all, if, if we didn't even have a manuscript, if it didn't exist, would we still have sealing as we understand it today? That's a really good question. Because sealing uh, as a sacrament, if I can call it that, as a sacrament, its language is really very reminiscent of the Revelation. So the sacramental practice of sealing changes over time from the high priests to the patriarchs to to the uh, uh, eventual temple kind of uh, sacrament. So it it changes over time. The, the words of the sacrament, the ordinance, is what Mormons call it in Protestant fashion maybe, uh, is... That's important, and it's developed out of the Revelation, largely. So they kind of influence one another. And, you know, this is something that I always say. I I don't know that how modern Mormonism could get rid of this Revelation without it having serious implications for other theological outlooks um, in Mormonism. Is do, do you agree with that? That's kind of a loaded question. <laughs> Can we get rid of it, please? Okay. Uh, I have a chapter in the book where I do get rid of it. So I get rid of the polygamy part, and it's very simple. It's almost like it was put in as a kind of an extra. You, I mean, you just eliminate a few things. and So you can read that version if you're uncomfortable with the real 132. <laughs> well, and in, and in certain ways, and we can talk about this later, but the modern shift with J. Reuben Clark and, and some of the McConkies. Some one of the McConkies, uh, they sort of shift this this language from polygamy to monogamy later on in the modern church. But before we get into that, let's talk about what else uh, this this revelation contains. What what is the the bulk of it? You talked about the priesthood being sort of a secondary thing. It is uh, very definitely a, an Old Testament text. The key figures in it are Old Testament people. Abraham, Sarah, uh, David, Solomon, those kinds of characters. And the language of the Revelation appeals to the, that kind of Old Testament, Lord God kind of thing. And why? Uh, uh, why would Joseph evoke biblical allegories? Well, he, does, he does this in all his revelations. Every one of his revelations has this biblical language, and he invokes biblical thought, uh, Parable, uh, the text, the motif in the texts are often connected with biblical uh, passages. Do you uh, think it's possible that he was doing so in order to frame this as a restoration of a biblical practice? Uh, and the Revelation does that. It does frame it as restoration of all things. And this is one of those things, polygamy. So the Revelation talks, it's meant to, the reason why it's written down is to convince Emma. That's the primary reason, you would argue. It talks about sealing and priesthood, priesthood authority to seal, which of course changes a little bit in the Utah period. And it talks about plural marriage. So what does it tell us about this 
doctrine. Because, of course, like you had mentioned before, this revelation comes out after this practice is already going strong in Nauvoo. Uh, yeah, going strong. It, there are not very many people involved in it, but but yeah, it's it's going already, strong for Joseph. You're right. That's yeah. Fair. Uh, yeah it's uh, so yeah it's a, it's present. There are key figures that are involved in it, and those figures become important after he dies because it's that involvement. That's one of the important things that decides how things go after he dies in terms of uh, who's the majority stake after Joseph, who gets the majority stake after Joseph dies. And it's the apostles. They're not part of that high priesthood story, but they become embedded in a polygamy story. And, and so through a kind of other door, they enter into this, this uh, succession uh, narrative. And so, hold on. I got to stop and think about that because that's really important. What you said, I think it's interesting that. So, what you just said is uh, his his leaders after him they get embedded in the polygamy story because the high priest story. There's not a lot of clarification on that, right? It doesn't work for them. They're not really part of that chain. So, how do they get? How do they look back and say, "This is a strategy they discuss." How do we think about this? We're in charge now. The the Latter-day Saints in Nauvoo, at least, vote them in as the first presidency. The whole group of apostles become the first presidency in August of 1844. And so how do we deal with this? How do we exercise this? How, how do we construct a, a justifying narrative for this position we're in? At first, they tried to go back to the high priesthood notion and say, well, uh, the apostles are really the real high priests. That doesn't work out because there's too much history about it. So they changed that and, and then try to come at it from another angle. And the one they choose is the temple. Uh, it, they are clearly involved in the temple before Joseph Smith dies. And they're the ones that have the keys to the temple, in a sense. So... So yeah, they they have to construct a narrative out of what's left to justify their 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 future leadership role. And so they do this by through the temple and through a number of other things, but but one of the things internally that becomes important in as far as the revelation is go, goes in the text of the revelation, it talks about the power to decide who gets sealed and to who. And the revelation is very, very specific. It says only one man can make this decision on the earth at a time. Only one man can be in charge of this. So after Joseph's death and after the apostles sort of uh, come into this, at least in Nauvoo, this sort of leadership role, who's the one guy? Well, now you look back and say, well, it's obviously Brigham Young, but at the time, that was not obvious at all. Who's the one guy? This is important internally because the revelation is not really public. So, and we do know that Brigham did authorize other folks to do sealings at certain times, especially towards the end of his life, like Wilford Woodruff. Uh, and this becomes a huge issue for succession of fundamentalist groups, right? This this oh, yes. doctrine. Yeah, that's uh, really important. So... Um, it's 
pretty an insightful comment, and it's got my brain spinning now because I never really thought about this. Do you think that this could be one reason why Brigham Young was so focused on the practice of plural marriage? Because it, I, I don't want to say it was the easiest, because certainly it wasn't easy, but it was one of the things that they could latch on, interpret, define themselves with, because certainly it was a big part of Joseph's life, but outwardly it wasn't. Joseph was experimenting with all sorts of things, but Brigham really, really takes this and focuses a lot of his energy on this practice. And it, is that what you're saying, because priesthood was too murky? Uh, to no, uh, not exactly. I think part of what you said is what I what I was trying to get at, but... Uh, uh, something else is involved here, and it's part. It's linked to this idea of who who's the one guy, because the apostles can't come to a conclusion about this. They have how many have read the Harry Potter books? Do, do you remember that thing about the secret keeper spell? Yeah. The the secret keeper spell. <laughs> the secret keeper spell is this thing where you can tell somebody a secret. But they can't tell anybody else. So you can give this secret away, but they, it can't go any further than the circle you decide it goes to. Uh, so it's, polygamy is like that with Joseph, and, and sealing is like that with Joseph. He could tell people to be sealed or to engage in polygamy, but nobody. there's no second step. You can't go beyond that. Those guys can't tell people to do it. Uh, but after he's dead, it's like the secret keeper spell. In the secret keeper spell... Anybody who knows the secret becomes a secret keeper. Well, the apostles know the secret. They become, they all think they're the secret keeper now. Mm. So they're out doing this stuff, you know. And as a mathematician, you can see the, the problem with polygamy and secrets. Uh, you keep the secret amongst your family. If you have five wives, kind of uh, multiplies. So, yeah, it's so the apostles all think they're the one guy. Because, it's, you know, Joseph is dead and now they're the one guy. All of them are the one guy. Okay? So they can go out and do... So, yeah, I've got, uh, people like John Taylor, Parley Pratt, they're out taking wives or giving, other, giving wives to other people or to each other. And Brigham has got to rope this in, he thinks. Because if I don't, uh, chaos will set in. So he has to convince them that he's the one guy. And part of his methodology for doing this is that we've got to bring the first presidency back, just the three-man presidency, okay? Not a 12-man presidency, which I can't really control. A three-man presidency I can control, but I can't control a 12-man because they all think they're the same. And that's kind of his fault because he does that in England when they're on their mission. But, but anyway, uh, yeah, so he he constructs this narrative that he's now the one guy, and it's really important to him uh, because the revelation is there, sitting there, and uh, so so he he gets the he gets the uh, uh, he gets the one guy position by reestablishing the first presidency, and those guys that don't that want to be the one guy jointly. He does it when they're gone, <laughs> so, so that uh, so they're not in the pressure. When they finally come back, then they say, "Well, you know, what's done is done. I guess this is it." But uh, but yeah, so he 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 he's very intelligent in how he approaches this problem because he sees the issue here of 
trying to spread this authority too widely. And not just that authority, but all the rest of it. Who decides who's a bishop? Okay, who decides who's a stake president kind of thing. That should be kept close to the vest so that chaos doesn't ensue, at least in this early time when there aren't very many Mormons around. So, And I would say this is still one of the biggest challenges of Mormon leaders is authority and succession. And I, I still don't, I mean, modern LDS Mormonism, we have a system now and we think we've got it figured out, but there is enough wiggle room in the text i think that allows people to believe that they have a revelation and you know some seminary teacher that's been teaching it and realizes that now he has the authority or something like that um so that's what i i want to talk about we just covered about you talk about the permission to seal in the book um you also say this revelation talks about um eternal damnation so let's talk about the damnation part something really fun So uh, that ties into one of the other points about the revelation about polygamy, and, and that is I think that it, gets, uh, it becomes part of the institution when Joseph, Joseph is alive because he's still scarred by the failure of Missouri. And the failure of Missouri is like a, uh, something hanging over his head that he never really gets through. Uh, and it's a shock to everybody else as well. Uh, they thought this was a preparing for the end of the world. Now it seems like it's being put off somehow. Why is this happening? What's going on? And so he feels like one of the things that happened in Missouri was there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of splitting going on, a schism. You know, prominent people, all the New York people, the founding members left. Uh, a kind of a tragic thing in a way, and. Uh, so he wants to, I th- this is my opinion, but I think it's supported by the texts, that uh, he wants to kind of introduce this sort of uh, testing ground to, to find out who's loyal, who's going to stick with me on this. And polygamy, I think, is one of those things. Uh, yeah, it, we often talk about polygamy being a loyalty test in the early church and, and later on, certainly, too. Oh, yeah. So, and, and I would say still now, I mean, it's in some ways, if you're a polygamist in the LDS church, you're out. <laughs> uh, true. It's become reverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that happened when, uh, after the, after the uh, 1910s, uh, 1900s, uh, polygamy becomes, uh, uh, after the manifesto, in fact, uh, the younger generation in the church before that were sympathetic. To polygamy, and look, we'll we will support you. You know, we'll hide you out if you're hiding for the marshals. We'll, we'll we'll help you. After the manifesto, the justification for doing these kinds of things sort of disappears, and so the polygamists that are present at the time and new polygamy is a little going on a little bit at the time, and they lose this support structure. Uh, you know, you can't just go to your neighbor's house and hey, can I hide in your basement for a while? Uh, because the marshals are after me. Uh, it, that starts to dissipate. People that uh, went to Mexico to p- participate in polygamy there, they end up coming back because of the Mexican War. They, they're coming back to Utah. They come back in 1910, 1913. They show up in Utah with, with you know, multiple wives and large families, and they are persona non grata. People look down on them and say, you are not real Mormons. 
this is sort of a turning the tables on these people, scratching their heads, going, I gave all this up. I gave all this to be a Mormon, and now I'm not a real one. So, so yeah, this kind of turns the tables. And I actually think that's one of the most fascinating stories, and and I guess if we could call it modern Mormonism. It's not really modern. Mormonism's only, you know, two centuries old. So uh, I want to stick a pin in that, because I want to talk about how the revelation shifts and how we interpret it. But um, back to eternal damnation, because I just love the topic. I, you were, Sorry, I, was, I drifted away from that. No, that's good. I, I had one more question, because I think the thing that people often remember is the angel with the sword threatening Emma. But So talk about that, but also talk about uh, there's more, um, I guess, warnings for damnation than just, than just for Emma. So do you want to talk about that? Uh, I think that's one of those themes about, you know, testing. So uh, Joseph regards the disloyalty that happened in Missouri as really damnation worthy. And my big deal really in history is preaching. And so I've done a lot with Mormon preaching. And uh, and that's one of his primary themes after Missouri is this idea of damnation. And he takes it out of the sixth chapter of Hebrews or it talks about eternal judgment. The word eternal judgment is there. He connects this with the idea of sons of perdition, uh, damnation forever, that kind of thing, this theme that appears in his early vision, uh, section 76, about, uh, you know, there's a whole... The, the, the two biggest groups that gets, get airtime in section 76 are the guys that are going to hell forever and the ones that are going to the highest heaven. The rest, nobody else gets time there. Uh, I had a dream about that. I should tell you about it. But uh, <laughs> uh, Yeah, no, let's talk about that. <laughs> no, it's strange. But anyway, uh, yeah, I, I, I think this damnation narrative is part of this. And it shows up in the Revelation. You can think of it as, again, a kind of carrot stick thing for Emma. So what does damnation mean? Uh, uh, and sealing is a really important element of this thing. Uh, sealing at the time is very much in the mode of, uh, I could use the Protestant term, perseverance. Okay, If you're sealed, if you're sealed to somebody in uh, that early period, I mean, there's no through your faithfulness clause. I mean, you're sealed. The only way it can be undone is for the person who did it, who authorized it in the first place to undo it. That could, that could happen. Or the other way it could be undone is if you do certain bad things. And the, the narrative is not completely clear, clear here about what those bad things are. But, but in the Revelation, it's murder. Okay, If you commit murder, uh, shedding innocent blood is how it's stated. And so that gets played all kinds of different ways. But, but he's really talking about murder because it's really a Missouri thing. Okay, It speaks to this disloyalty thing. And so, uh, yeah, it's sealing is permanent there. It only becomes impermanent later. Uh, Orson Pratt publishes the sealing ceremony uh, in 1853. And already there's this clause, this pessimistic clause, if you're faithful kind of thing. But that wasn't present early on. It's because they learned through trial and error. I exactly, think. yes. <laughs> but uh, I, 
I think there's an interesting implication of gender here because my understanding growing up LDS of this damnation doctrine, it's sort of gendered, right? We have sons of perdition. We have people who deny the priesthood. But in a strange sort of ironic way, uh, this revelation gives parity to women for damnation. Uh, and so I, I just think that that's an interesting thing to point out. Like, women can go to hell, too. That's, that's Yay. A, it's a big debating point later on. You know, are there women who are in permanent hell later on? And so some of later, you know, 1910s, 1890s, some of the apostles think, yeah, women can go to hell. It's not just men. But others say, no, women can't do this. I like those guys. Those are the guys I listen to. Um, and do you want to speak to the angel with the sword just because it shows up in polygamy all the time? Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't really. I don't know what to make of it. Uh, there are narratives about it, but they're all long time after. There's no, on this day, oh, I wrote in my diary because uh, there was an angel that appeared with a sword. So I don't know. That's one of the big, I'm just huge say, problems with polygamy. If an is, angel comes, he doesn't need a sword. I'm convinced. Like, I, you don't need a sword. I'm sold. Yeah. Uh, but my faith is probably stronger than the rest of you, so that's okay. The sword motif is important, though, right? Because of authority, right? So. Yeah, uh, so to you, the sword represents authority. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, I won't, I'll stop. No, that's great. Um... So, again, you speak a lot on Emma, which I appreciate. So if anyone wants to talk about the implications and the promises and the threats, if you will, to Emma Smith, you you cover that a lot. Um, One of the things that this revelation does that you really highlight is it really talks a lot about Joseph Smith. Um, It talks about he's a servant. uh, This is how hard it is for him. And, of course, if you look at the revelation just on the basis of convincing Emma Smith, it makes sense. Like, oh, look, poor guy. This is hard for him, too. So you need to be convinced. But it, what does it, it also gives him standing, though. It, 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 it tells the reader that Joseph's salvation is assured. He can't go wrong. And it's not like he doesn't believe this himself because preaching, he says, uh, look, any, I'm going to heaven. Anybody I seal to me, I'm going to drag along with me. So, hey, join the bandwagon because you'll go to heaven if you're sealed to me somehow. Wife, friend, something. Uh, um, so, yeah, this is a powerful thing for him. Uh, and this community idea is another aspect of the revelation. Is, uh, we're joined together uh, permanently and because it, it, that has a, a kind of negative thing that happens later on, and that's that uh, uh, there's a negative aspect to it, uh, that this idea of, of uh, who can you be sealed to? Who should you be sealed to? Uh, my parents, I'm thinking I'm living in the 1850s. My parents died before they ever heard about Mormonism. Should I be sealed to them or not? The reason why this becomes a big question is because the end of the world is really near. It's really close. People take this thing. We, we now have this sort of allegorical interpretation of this, this thing that Joseph Smith experiences where he says it's in the Doctrine and Covenants, right, that 
If I live till I'm 85, I'll see Jesus. Well, he interprets that experience early on as, yeah, that's the end of the world. When I'm 85 is the end of the world. Later on, it becomes more nuanced about it. And the bit that we have now is the more nuanced uh, version of it. But early on, he thinks it's, this is it. This is the end. He counts off the years. Uh, and so we got to hurry up. Well, this, this kind of air of we're near the end. We got to take care of this. And that's, that's where the Elijah thing comes in is we got to be connected. Otherwise, everything will be destroyed. So we got to be connected. And, but we can't, we got to have sure links. You can't just be linked to anybody. So God needs paperwork. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this is a big part of things, right? You got to keep records. And so so yeah, you got to you got to have the you got to have it down on paper. And so don't don't but the, but the other aspect is that your parents, maybe your dead parents don't want anything to do with this. Maybe they're happy in hell or something. So <laughs> they don't want anything to do with this. And so there's your link. You're not connected anymore. You're not bought in. You're not going anywhere where you want to go. And I so. think this is so important because I'm always saying Mormonism and polygamy are so tied. Polygamy is everywhere. And this is another great example of this urgency, this whole attitude that's still very pervasive in Mormonism. And, of course, this is human nature, but I think it's really amplified in a Mormon way is you're with us or against us, right? And like you said, this, this polygamy loyalty test that Joseph institutes before this revelation, but especially with Emma, where he links it to damnation you reject this and you're going to be left behind and not just left behind you know from the afterlife but from our family from our connections and it really sort of i think codifies this idea of eternal families in mormonism because you know it's this idea of i grew up lds thinking that only lds people thought that families were forever that when you died you could be with your family and then when i found out other religions did too i was like what i thought we were the only ones but in this way, it's you could be together, but really to be together in the structure of heaven, this is this is what it means. So, what does this revelation do for our view of the afterlife, what it, of, of heaven? Uh, well, cosmically, uh, think of uh, you know fifteen hundreds. What do, how do people think about the cosmos then? Um, it's it's a very it, you, you you get this kind of aspect of there are all kinds of influences in the cosmos there are spirits of the forest there are spirits that can ruin your crops there are uh, spirits that can possess you they can do other things to you how do you protect yourself from these things and this kind of uh, enchanted world is something that comes down into Joseph Smith's life this kind of seeing stones kind of things that are pervasive in the neighborhood. Uh, they sort of prepare the ground for uh, Joseph to be involved in this, and he uses these seeing stones to try to locate treasure, which, which treasure is moved around by spirits, right? It's still this kind of, still this kind of almost Middle Ages, medieval kind of picture of the world. And although that gets kind of pushed aside later, uh, we still have this rather very deep connection to the world of spirits in in Mormonism. It's kind of disappeared in a lot of Protestant, Protestantism, but 
but but we hold on to this. And that's a really important aspect to this kind of idea of damnation and uh, ha- what happens to people, uh, where do they go. Uh, Joseph has this whole narrative about spirits. You know, he, he materializes them in a way, but really doesn't. So they're, they're really separate. They're really still transcendental, even though he says spirit is material. It's really kind of a squishy kind of a thing. Uh, you can't really nail it down. It's not protons and neutrons and electrons. It's something else. Okay, so I, I think that that's important, too, because one of the biggest critiques of Mormonism from larger Christianity is, well, there's a lot, but I'll, one of them is that we uh, are works over grace, right? And I see that. I'm being reductive. There's more to this this development of this doctrine, but I see this as sort of instituting um, some groundwork for that, that not all of us are going to be sealed to God and sealed in heaven. You have to go through this proper authority. And what that does is it sort of takes away, I would say, the mainstream view of grace that, you know, all can be saved in God. And Joseph Smith is saying, but wait, if you really want the good stuff, you have to be sealed in this way. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, that's yeah. He's very clear about that. Uh, in funeral sermons after after the revelation is given, he doesn't announce the revelation, but he talks about sealing and the effect of sealing and what happens if you're not sealed. You could end up being an angel. You know, angels have this sort of dichotomous thing in Mormonism. You know, there's a positive view of angels, and there's a negative view. Sometimes they have swords. Sometimes in, they don't. In one thirty-two, it's kind of negative, right? You end up being an angel, and really, you're a lower class citizen. Orson Pratt says, hey, you guys end up being angels. You're going to be greasing my wagons in the afterlife. It's going to be my job. It's very literal. Signed up you for know, that. I have a very literal picture of what's going to be going on. When they pass around the Relief Society clipboard, I'm like, administering angel. That's me. That's my job. <laughs> Plural wife, administering angel. I'll go with administering angel. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you with a dumb joke. but It's okay. Um, it's to the point. Well, so... So, I mean, I think that somebody should do some research on how polygamy affects this idea of grace and Christ and the atonement. And that's what I'm like. Polygamy is everywhere. I'm not lying. It's everywhere. Uh, I want to talk about something really controversial. And this is something I still have a hard time understanding because I work with different fundamentalist groups. And so it shows up in different areas. But you have an entire chapter devoted to the law of Sarah. And we've already talked about Joseph sort of borrowing biblical language, but why don't you explain your interpretation of how this fits and what this, basically what the function of this law is. So Joseph is borrowing from the Bible again, and uh, uh, which he does with impunity because he believes that what he's doing or what he's involved in is a, is a bringing back of not just the New Testament, He's gone far beyond this, all the way to Adam. He's bringing all this back. And uh, it's going to be reified now uh, in this new new organization, this new church. And so he he borrows this motif of the Hagar thing. In fact, uh, the original title I wanted to name the book was The Restoration of Hagar. I, I think it makes sense that... Lloyd rejected it because it didn't fit with the series title, but uh, uh, but the but I like it still. Uh, 
if, uh, if, it ever, if the book ever gets reprinted, I want to lobby for it again. But uh, At least get her on the cover. Yeah. It's a subtitle or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, this idea of ha- Sarah and Hagar, which is a horrendous story in the Old Testament, but, but, it, but in, the, in, the, uh, in the Revelation, he appeals to this idea of you can't take another wife or you wouldn't take another wife unless you asked your first wife if you could. Uh, and that sounds really good, right? So you, you can't really jump into this without the whole everybody being on board. But <laughs> he cuts the legs off of it because he says, if, if your wife doesn't go along with it, you can go ahead anyway. So that's the law of Sarah. So the, right. the gist is you just have to tell her and if she says no, you can do it anyway. This becomes an important point in Utah, right? Especially during the raid, where you have reluctant wives, right? They are, they're not interested in having their husband, even if they can't have children, which is a big deal. Uh, uh, they're not interested in their husband recruiting another wife or, or them being forced to recruit another wife or being asked to recruit another wife for their husband. Some of them are not interested in that. And... Uh, the law of Sarah is appealed to. I mean, these guys are right to the president of the church, and the president of the church says, "Yeah, if we could only uh, uh, get around the power that she has over you because of the, the the polygamy raid is now going on, we can't really out you as a polygamist uh, because then you'll be put, you'll be put in jail. So if your wife doesn't go along with this, she's already said she's going to out you if you do it, and so probably you don't want to do it." And uh, so she she has them over a barrel because of the raid. Before that, there's no barrel, right? You can get another wife if you want one, even if your first wife objects. It's not really a good policy to do it, I don't think. But but they did. So so yeah, it was. It, but it it becomes this law of Sarah becomes an important uh, theological issue, at least. Yeah, and we, there's many stories, like you said, in the frontier of men showing up with wives. I, I would say, especially during the Mormon Reformation, it really ramps up with oh, yeah. right. this This law was uh, used quite a bit. And there's this interesting cultural application now in modern fundamental scripts. Uh, a lot of them still use this this law, and Sarah now has been equated with an obedient sort of ideal woman. So um, a lot of fundamentalists will call their, you know, their... I think it's their first mom, the Sarah. And the FLDS have a hymn called The One True Sarah. And it's it's sort of this idea of the one true Sarah, the good Sarah, the good wife has these characteristics. Um, so it's interesting to see how that, that plays out. I don't know that there is much of a discourse or even cultural remnants of this practice in LDS Mormonism. Do you, do you see that, the law of Sarah? Uh, yeah, it appears. Uh, it appears, but mostly in a negative way. Like uh, I mentioned, you know, women refusing to allow their husbands to take other wives. And sometimes they can get away with that, and sometimes they can't. But I mean, like law. now, do we see it show oh. up like, in the modern LDS context? Uh, well, <laughs> there isn't much about that in official print, right? Uh, but, uh, yeah, so people think. I've interviewed a few people about this that... 40 or 50 people. Uh, a few. 40 what, or 50. What do they think about this? What do women think about this? Uh, 
and I would, uh, uh, an interview that Brad did in his dissertation sort of appeals to this because there's one woman who says that he interviewed said that uh, I pray every night that Jim will die before I do. Yeah, that's what Carolyn Pearson talks about in her book, uh, The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, just sort of the pain that that this loophole causes women. And and for me, when I think about it, it's just sort of this anxiety that, uh, you know, God doesn't, he has all these sure promises for men, these sure uh, processes and handbooks and guidelines that can, so you know the way, you know the way to go. But for women, you can be told and then it's going to happen anyway. So it's sort of this anxiety-filled thing for, for LDS women at least. Let's talk about now the LDS interpretation. Um, how how is this revelation interpreted today? How is it used today? Because uh, obviously we've moved on from polygamy, right. so they say. The uh, you can sort of get a picture of this if you look at the liminal text of the revelation. By that I mean like the headings and the footnotes and that kind of thing. Uh, so the first publication. Uh, is in 1852, and it, it comes out as, as because of politics at the time. At the same time, this other sort of hidden revelation, uh, we, section 110, which has now been folded into this idea of sealing, it comes out in public for the first time then. Uh, so it's quoted when, when 132 is introduced in, the, in August of 1852, and then in November, it's the, the one, section 110 revelation, the vision, is is finally published in total then. So these, uh, what was your question? <laughs> Just how the modern context, yeah, modern, how we see it. So I was, yeah, it so, took me a minute too. What was my question? <laughs> so, yeah, the, so if you look at the liminal text, the headings, for example, how they change over time, what's the emphasis? At the beginning, this is a, this is a revelation about celestial marriage, and celestial marriage is anybody? Polygamy. Polygamy. It's polygamy. That's what celestial marriage means. By the time the next century rolls around, celestial marriage now becomes what? Temple marriage. Temple marriage. Right. Temple marriage. So the title, the use of the title becomes changed. Uh, well, and so, Brian Hales gets beat up about this a lot because he says that DNC is the marriage revelation, not the polygamy revelation. And in the LDS context, he's right. I mean, that yeah. is how modern LDS people read. When I read it, I didn't read polygamy at first. Um, I just thought it had to do with the temple. And I think that, that there's been a deliberate effort over time to sort of shift the language. Like I said, Jay Rubin Clark was responsible. We covered that in the podcast, but... Um, Sure, it gets it gets. They try to leave it out at one point. So James E. Talmage is the point man. He publishes a version of the Doctrine and Covenants without this revelation in it. And that's in nineteen forty something. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, nineteen thirty. Uh, be who's who's 30, a historian that would know this? Thirty something like that. I should know that. He dies in thirty three. Just did an episode so it's, on it's, that. Has to be before that, but. Uh, yeah, so he publishes a version of the Revelations without this one in it, without it in the, in the collection. And for various reasons I won't go into here, but uh, 
Heber J. Grant finally says, no, you can't. We can't do that. we got to put it back in. So, well, and I think some of the reasons you talked about, I mean, it's tied into ceiling authority. It's tied into priesthood power. Yeah, that wasn't his reason, though. Well, now i got to know the reason. No, uh, I, that's going to derail us. But, but, but the... Uh, oh. But, <laughs> but the... <laughs> But yeah, the bumper sticker phrase, right? Families are forever. That's this. That's yeah. this revelation, right? 1942-ish, Marion G. Romney starts using this idea of families are forever. And it becomes a theme, right? It becomes a missionary theme. It becomes the whole missionary effort becomes focused later on in the succeeding decades about this idea that you could be with your family forever. And the textual foundation for that is section 132. So we have a primary hymn that says, I have a family here on earth, they are so good to me. And we should include the the verse that, uh, and I have four moms and 32 siblings, and that's part of the revelation too. But that doesn't make it in because we shift the rhetoric to this being about temple marriage, which again is how I understood it. So when I saw, you know, it took me a while and I don't know why, but it took me a while to equate 132 with polygamy. I remember people talking about it in seminary, and I still, because it doesn't use the word polygamy in the Revelation, it just was off my radar. So I think that the, the transition was very successful, but how do you, do you think that um, the modern interpretation is, I don't know, a sufficient one? I, I, it's kind of a hard question. Yeah, I, um, it would depend on who you asked, I guess. But uh, yeah, for the modern church, this is the way we want to approach it. There are important elements of the Revelation that are still present, right? The idea of one person, right, being the key turner. Right? There's just one guy. We, over time, we developed this sub-narrative about the other apostles being sort of key turners in potential, right? That wasn't present in the beginning, but... Later on, it it develops, and uh, but the yeah one guy that's important, and the revelation is really the source of that, and it identifies the person who's in charge, right, of everything. So, and I also think that this loyalty test that we talk about, you know, when we're talking about the modern implications of changing this from plural marriage to temple marriage, the loyalty test now gets equated with temple marriage. And that's why, I, you know, you, you talk to people who say, my grandparents in the 40s weren't married in the temple, they were sealed later. Well, that's because the loyalty test was different then. It was shifting, and, and now the shift is you get married in the temple. Celestial marriage is, is the loyalty test. At least that's how I see it. Right. It is the, it is the right-hand lane on the road, right? Yeah. So, yeah, you want to stay in that lane. It's where we focus all our training in. For young people, right? The, the historically, the manuals from 1910 on are really a lot of those are focused on this idea uh, for women of starting a family, and it will be a temple family, going to the temple kind of thing, and they're sort of in control of that narrative because the men are too, too wild in their. Uh, they can't, their desires can't be controlled, so the women have to control this narrative. And you've got to get them to the temple, kind of thing. Well, and we have decades of this idea of polygamy being about sacrifice, being about um, 
what's the word I want? Uh, refiner's fire, a test. That's not quite the word I wanted. Um, all of these things. And then when we abandoned it, we still have all those, all that rhetoric, all those ideas, all that, that atmosphere. And so we have to shift it into monogamous marriage. And, and I contend all the time on the podcast that this is why we're so, the modern LDS church is so focused on LGBT issues because we were so focused on the family now, and now we still have all that energy that we have to focus on the family, but now our families are just like everybody else. <laughs> yeah, ceiling, ceiling uh, in the middle Mormonism, I call it after Joseph Smith. So in middle Mormonism, ceiling is, is, can be applied to all kinds of relationships, at least in potential. But after 1894... Wilford Woodruff, has, Wilford, Woodruff has, Wilford Woodruff has this revelation in 1894, which he announces. He never writes it down, although he leaves a, leaves a big chunk of his journal blank where he's going to copy it in, but he never copied it in. Uh, but in 1894, he reinterprets this idea of sealing. Uh, it's no longer urgent for us to close the circle. You don't have to be sealed to somebody who's surely going to be saved in order to be saved. You can take a chance on your great-grandfather and be sealed to him. And, <laughs> and he can take a chance on his and so forth. You can just keep pushing this back. And then at the end, when you finally get to the as far back as you can find, seal them to Joseph Smith. <laughs> that dies, of course, because you can't ever figure out when you're far when you found the end. So. But bless his heart, he was trying because in his defense, he had so many people coming to him and saying, but what about my sister's kids that died before they were, you know. Right. The sealing practice is still messy to Mormons. I, I know that it causes people anxiety. I remember being in discussions growing up as a little girl of, well, if so-and-so dies, who, you know, now he's remarried. Who, are, who do the kids go to? Do they go to the father? Which mm-hmm. father? And. The first presidency letterpress from 1880s through 1910s, 20s, is a really important source for this because they have to deal with all these questions about, I was sealed to my husband and he died young. We had two kids, but now I'm in love with another guy. Can I be sealed to him? And, and the answers change over time. At first they go, well, sure, what's wrong with that? Now, the kids that you bore for this guy, they'll be sealed to him, the dead guy. But any children that are born to you after now be sealed to the, to the new husband. So it's really interesting dynamics if you think about the afterlife. How does this all connect together? We need an angel with a sword to figure this out. <laughs> Come help us out. Okay, I'm going to open this up for questions in just a minute. But is there anything else bef- you know, for our portion of the interview? Is there any other things that you want to say about this revelation in particular that you feel like people don't really understand? Well, uh, it's a fundamental thing still. It's the textual foundation for so many things that we do. And the way we think about church leadership or the way we think about temple marriage or the way that we think about what the temple endowment does for you. All those kinds of things enter into this, the the revelation. There's lots of other narratives, but we don't have time to talk about them, I don't think. But, uh, yeah, it's it's really all over the place and nowhere. So now it's somewhere. That's a great way to to say polygamy in the church. It's all over the place and nowhere. So it's a perfect... That's a perfect way. So let's give Bill a hand, and then we'll open it up for questions.
I'm going to let Brian Whitney from Cofert okay. host the Q&A, and oh. we're going to keep recording for the audio. Is that okay? Okay, sure, sure. Um, I'll throw out a question to get started, because then you guys can build Thank you. That off, great. Off, of, uh, off of that. So you said something that was just kind of breezed over, Bill, about uh, the political timing of the announcement of the revelation in 1852. Can you give us a little bit of insight into what was happening politically, and specifically why publicly announcing this document that was a letter, really an epistle of sorts, why that would have played into politics? In Utah, and uh, we'll it yeah, it's kind of a negative story in a way. But it, uh, when the Mormons came west, they came west with the idea of establishing an independent empire, independent nation, and, uh, and of course the reason for that is that they they were they they got lots of things going on, especially polygamy they have going on. And how do we we can't really deal with this, we can't really do the stuff we want to do within the confines of the present governmental forms. So part of their motivation for getting out of the United States and coming west and finding some place to reestablish Zion, if you will, is this independence. Uh, but circumstances foil that because, uh, uh, in fact, the Mormons are right in, are involved in those circumstances because uh, Polk, James Polk, that the Mexican War is initiated, right? So uh, Mexico really owns Utah at the time, and and uh, the Mexicans are defeated, uh, and they sign the Treaty of uh, uh, Guadalupe Hidalgo, and, and in that treaty, Mexico cedes all this territory to the United States. And so what is the United States going to do with that? Well, the Mormons are are... Not quite out there yet, almost. But they got they got a seed colony in in Utah, uh, which they're calling Deseret, right? And they're staking out huge territories. Well, the United States doesn't really pay attention too much attention to those boundaries. It organizes what's called a military district, but several military districts, and and uh, and Utah becomes. Uh, we think about present day Utah becomes part of military district and. Those eventually are going to become United States territories. That's not a positive thing for Mormons. They want to, if they, that's got to be, if they're going to be part of the United States, they want to be what? They want to be a state, right? Because the way the federal government, the relationship between the federal government and states at the time worked was states were really very independent entities. Uh, part of this has to do with slavery and other issues, but uh, but right from the beginning, the states are very independent. They, for example, this, uh, there was a long debate about whether the Bill of Rights applied in states. You know, it applies to the federal government, but does it apply to state governments? And at first, the answer is no. So, uh, a lot of things that happened within states uh, was a result of that philosophy. Andrew Jackson's uh, presidency, the most violent presidency. Uh, in maybe in history, aside from the Civil War, uh, is, it's part of this this misrule kind of thing uh, uh, that states are really largely independent. When Joseph Smith goes to, this is going too long, but when Joseph Smith goes to Washington in 1840 to seek redress for what happens in Missouri, well, the president of the United States is uh, is uh, Martin Van Buren. He's 
the next Jackson. Uh, and he has no interest in uh, trying to put the pressure on Missouri because one of his big guy, big important supporters uh, is uh, Thomas Hart Benton. He's the, one of the senators from Missouri. He's not going to go that way. Uh, among that's among other reasons. But so anyway, there's this dividing line between territory and state. Utah does not want to be a territory. They want to be a state uh, because they'll have all this independence. They can do polygamy. They can have the Mormons be the subliminal government through state organizations. But if they're a territory, guess who's in control? The federal government's in control. They send people out to be part of the, the territorial government. It's uh, it's very political process, in terms of federally political process. And you can't you have to be really careful about what you do because the federal government can you know is much more strict than uh, than what you would be as, as a state government and so being a territory is not a positive thing but that's what happens so they're a territory they want to lobby to be a state and part of the lobbying to be a state is that they have guys back there trying to lobby congress and the president for utah to be a state there are some positive forces in that direction. Uh, and, uh, but the thing that puts an end to it, really, is that this revelation, the, the territorial appointees come out and they learn about polygamy. They learn about the subliminal government of the church in politics. And they go back and tell stories about it. And as a result of those stories, uh, their hopes for statehood are, it's a lot more detail I can't go into, but, it, but their hopes for statehood are dashed. Why was polygamy important to be put out there? You said it was a political decision to put it out. How did that affect the outcome? Uh, their main guy in, our, their main guy, non-Mormon guy that was sort of on their side was Thomas Kane, And he didn't believe the rumors about polygamy. And uh, so he was, he was telling people that, no, this is all wrong. There is no polygamy in Utah. Church isn't doing that. I can't believe that. But finally, his, his partner in crime, who's John Bernheisel, who knows very well about polygamy, he finally has to tell him, take him inside, look, you can't really say that because you'll get in trouble eventually about it if you do. This devastates him. And uh, the whole enterprise for statehood goes in the pot from there because there are too many people in uh, uh, Protestant America who thinks this is, think this is just the devil, right? So, uh, uh, yeah, so their statehood goes out then. Go ahead. Um, so two things. First, a comment, and then second, a question. Um, when you were talking about the law, Sarah, um, I just have to say that I definitely see the cultural influence on it today because what the law, Sarah, is is a canonized record of saying you can ignore a woman's consent. You are justified in it if you think you are doing something righteous. And so culturally, this plays out in a lot of different ways. I think of like the family proclamation and how it was drafted, and then it, they were told before it was announced 
but it wasn't necessarily something that they were a part of or had a decision of. Um, I think of like maybe a man getting a calling and not having to ask his wife first and just consenting the calling. Maybe they talked about it prior to, but there's this general idea that it's something that um, a woman's consent is something you can override so long as you're justified in a righteous um, endeavor. And so I'm not on board with the rule of law, Sarah. But for my, for my question, though, which is really, um, okay, so in Mormonism, we have a lot of really cool ideas, and polygamy is one of those weird ones. Another one of those weird ones is theosis, the idea that we can become gods, too. And um, in DC 132, it kind of touches on the concept of theosis in relation to plural marriage. And there's been a lot of like speculative theology, some quite comical of what that will look like and things like that. But I would love to hear your take on the intersections of theosis and the intersections of plural marriage in DC 132. So that's really an interesting and complicated story. Uh, there are two kinds of narratives that are going around the church in the 1840s. Uh, and these have to do with beginning things and ending things. So uh, you could call it protology and eschatology, if you want to use the technical term. So the protology is that there, uh, Joseph is pushing this idea that uh, um, that people are uh, not contingent beings. You are people are self-existent. They have this. the The person lives on forever, and the person has always lived. Okay, there's no beginning and no end to personhood. Okay, so you've always been around, and you always be around. So there's this thing he's pushing right from the beginning of Nauvoo to the end, and. Uh, he uses it as a as a he uses it for a number of different things, but he uses it as a kind of a uh, a position to comfort people. Right? Your your husband died, your wife died, your children died. No worries. They can't go out of existence. Why? Because of this Platonic reasoning. You know, they've always been there, so they're always going to be around. So that's that's going around Nauvoo. Uh, the other thing that's happening in Nauvoo that starts really early on in 1832, there's this idea of, of divinity, of humans becoming divine. And the story of that develops through time, but the revelation points to the idea of this, this idea of uh, sealing in verse 19, verse 26 of the revelation. That this idea of sealing is a gateway to become godlike, okay, uh, men and women become gods by participating in this in the associated ritual sealing. So, so those those kinds of things are circulating in Nauvoo. Polygamy enters into this story because after Joseph dies and polygamy starts to become public, you have to have a narrative. You have to have a narrative. And there's a lot of cultural stuff that I'm not going to take three hours to try to understand, but the whole bunch of cultural issues that happen because of the isolation of Utah, the transition to the West, uh, other kinds of things. Polygamy is a big part of this. How do we justify uh, all this stuff we're doing uh, in 
metaphysical sense? How do, what's the background reasoning for this? And what they come up with is that uh, there's, you know, we think about going on in the hereafter. What does that entail? If we're together in the hereafter, what does that mean? How do we define that? What does it mean? And keep in mind, they still have this very, very material view now of what's the afterlife. You have horses and wagons kind of thing. Uh, the, and so they come up with this idea, well, people are married in the afterlife. What does that mean? Sex. It means sex. You're going to have sex in heaven. And so you paint that onto God eventually. God had sex in heaven, and that's where spirits come from. The technology for doing this is very involved. They have to talk about eating kinds of things and so on. But it's, it's, the biology is really interesting. But, the, but, yeah, so you have sex in heaven. That's where spirits come from. They're not eternal anymore, okay? They have this derived from parents kind of thing. And uh, uh, so, yeah, so this, the revelation plays into this because the revelation talks about uh, women as bearing the souls of men. The way this is, gets interpreted in, in Utah is that that means spirits. Exalted women are bearing the spirit, men's, the spirits of men and women in the heaven. Uh, so women are getting pregnant there. And that's a justification for polygamy, right? Because gestation has to take place. Orson has this worked out. It's got to work out. <laughs> Time-wise, you know, this time. So, you know, you got two wives... Gestation can happen twice as fast, effectively. So you need a lot of wives so that you can produce your offspring because that's how you get your glory. And that's in the book, too, about this idea of kingdom fever. You, you want to get the way you get glory. And that's part of what the revelation is about is glory. It, the way you get more glory is you have more progeny. Mm-hmm. And the way you do that is you got to have more wives because... You know, one wife can only just stay, you know, maybe you can have twins. I don't know how this all worked, but, but in their minds, that was, a, that was how polygamy fit. The justification for polygamy now fit into the metaphysics. God can create the world in seven days, but the womb takes nine months every day. Exactly. It takes a while for perfection. So I'm going to cut in for a second there. So it is now 10 to 9. I think Mormon testimonies usually go until 5 after the hour. Um, we have room for probably three or four more questions. I know that we've got one here. We've got one with an icon camera. We've got 15,000 here, and we've got one in the back. We're going to try to get through as many as we can, but if you've noticed, Bill will give a long answer for anything. So let's try to make questions I like succinct, long answers. Uh, if, if, if possible, so that we can try to get through as many as possible. Um, so I, I know there's a lot of hands. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm, I'm, and I hate to do this, but I'm going to work my way forward because we've already gotten a couple uh, up here. I know, I know, and I know that you've got the hardball, so we have to finish with that, right? So in the back with the blue shirt, if you could speak up, I'm going to repeat your question here. That's actually why Lindsay asked me to come up here, so I could repeat the question in the microphone. Part of the restoration of all things are the principles of the gospel, faith, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost. Those are universals for every member. How was it finessed that plural marriage was not applicable to everyone? 
Okay. So to repeat the question as much as I possibly can, maybe Lindsay can better, but how, how is it finessed that plural marriage is no longer applicable to everyone? Is that what you're, is that what, essentially yes, what you're saying? Other principles of the restoration. Yeah. If it, if it was considered part of the, an essential part of the restoration, right? So okay. you're saying that that was, it's, should be as foundational as faith, repentance, all other things being restored. Well, that's the implication. Okay. So that, uh, the, the story of that is, it's, it's, uh, that's a very present thing in Christianity, right? Is that uh, if you do the right thing, then you'll go to heaven, right? Or if you have the right faith, you'll go to heaven. It doesn't matter if you're impeded with doing some act, right? Uh, this is the thing that really shocked Joseph Smith about the vision with his brother. He sees his brother in heaven. His dead brother, Alvin, who died before any of this came about, right? Before Book of Mormon, all this stuff. Alvin, is, Alvin dies. And Joseph figures that he's gone to hell. Then he sees him in heaven, and he's really puzzled by this. He's shocked by this. The experts, excerpt that we put in, we, re, we inserted into the Doctrine and Covenants, doesn't really convey this very well, but he's shocked by this. What does this mean? Well, the explanation is given is that if they had the opportunity to do this, and they would have, they will, and they would have done it, then they're okay. So that's the logic, right? So that's one. That's one avenue. Another avenue is that you know the story is told in a different way. This is just a temporary thing. It was a test. It's not really forever. So. There are lots of there are all kinds of explanations in between that. Working our way forward, raise your hand again if you, uh, yeah, you in the blue blouse. Yes. So earlier you talked about how the revelation was inspired by Hiram Smith telling Joseph to go and get it, so to speak. When does the concept change in church history from the idea that a prophet could just go and get a revelation whenever he wanted, as opposed to we have to wait until God speaks, which seems to be the prevailing notion today? When did that change? I'm going to repeat that so that it's recorded here, um, and maybe you're going to have to help me a little bit here. But when did the notion of revelation being given for searching for a specific answer to a specific question from a specific person, right? When did it go from that to what? So basically, when did it go from a prophet can seek a question and answer and immediately receive a revelation, uh-huh. as opposed to now, which is we must wait until they receive revelation. I see, I see, okay. It's an entirely different prophetic relationship to revelation, as opposed to Joseph and Hiram just so, polygamy. So really, when did it go from proactive to reactive exactly. revelation? Exactly. Okay. Uh, there's a. This is tied to a view of how we think about Scripture. So what's Scripture? What is scripture? And who can declare scripture? And what does it mean? So there's a tiered system that takes place after Brigham Young dies. There's a kind of a tier system that starts to develop. And that's that, uh, that the stuff that's published, you know, we've got this expanded version of the Doctrine and Covenants now, 1876. It's got all, basically all the texts that we have now, a few, not, as, not all of them, but nearly all of them. And so that's kind of the imprint of revelation for Mormonism. Now, stuff that you say after that is kind of, it has to be tested by that, 
it becomes really, it becomes canon. It becomes the measuring stick. So what you say after this is now has to be measured by what's already been said. This was the kind of thing that happened, say, with uh, blacks in the priesthood, is that when, this, when the issue came up, and when they started talk, then when they would talk about this in meetings, in like in apostles, the first presidency, they were talking about this. The one guy would say, "Well, there's really nothing to talk about. It's already been said. Joseph Smith or Brigham said this, and so we really can't do anything about it. It's done." So we have a tendency to go back and look. Now, Scripture becomes the primary authority, mm-hmm. and we can now be interpreters of it. But the only ones who can really give a, official interpretations are, you know, the president of the church, and, and that's expanded now to the presidency and the apostles. Kind of, they can give these uh, authoritative interpretations. But that's, but anything else has to be measured by that. And as long as people, I say people, but as long as church leaders believe that it, this has been defined, it's an issue that's been defined. Well, there's nothing to say. Gentleman in the brown cap. Yeah, so first up, I have a comment and then a question. Uh, a comment on the, the law of Sarah. I think there might be a misunderstanding of what that is because in verse 34, it talks about that being commanded of God, where in verse 61, when we're talking about consent, that's if a man desires another wife. I can talk about that later if we want to talk after. For my question, though, uh, in a previous podcast you did for Greg Colbert, I believe uh, you said that... You, you didn't really buy the evidence that the re- marriage, or sorry, the revelation on plural marriage or polygamy was known as early as 1831. However, we have evidence from uh, Orson Pratt, uh, Joseph F. Smith, Joseph B. No- Noble, all with written documentation saying, no, this was being taught. Um, it was being taught because Joseph was studying the Bible and it fits up. Fits with the timeline of when Joseph was doing the, his inspired translation of the Bible. Why do you discount that evidence? Uh, I don't fully discount it. All what I uh, my nuanced answer would be that that almost all this testimony is late. There's no contemporary document that says uh, Joseph was talking to John Johnson about about oh when my Bible translation worked. I came across this idea of polygamy or that another story that circulated was that he told this to Oliver Cowdery. And so Oliver Cowdery says, okay, well, I'm going to go get another wife. That could, those kind of stories circulated later. And, but the documentation, the, the contemporary documentation doesn't exist. And so because of how stories develop over time like that, uh, it's very difficult to take that those kinds of stories completely seriously. The, the way people talk about history and memory, uh, it's, it's very difficult to set a, a specific time about when something happened. For example, I'll give you an example, Parley Pratt. Parley Pratt, in his autobiography, which is written long after Joseph Smith is dead, he tells the story that when Joseph came out to Washington, that Joseph taught him about sealing when he came out to Washington. Probably didn't happen that way. Another story that's very popular, Joseph F. Smith, okay? Joseph F. Smith tells this story about him being in Hawaii 
and he has this dream where he comes to and he sees Joseph Smith and and his father and they're all dressed in white and he's in white now but he was delayed so he could be clean to to get to this to get to wherever he was going and then he sees Joseph Smith in his dream I'm late but I'm clean he says so that's a that's a story that he assigns later on to his tenure in Hawaii but in fact this probably takes place in England when he's a missionary there much later that's when he narrates it there is that's when it's happened it's not this early time so Wilfred Wardoff does kind of the same thing when he talks about in his diary he mentions a meeting in Ohio about where they're dis- they're discussing what happens in the church what's going to happen in the church what's the future of all this movement well it's pretty benign the way he records what's going on in his contemporary document but 50 years later when he talks about it in public it's become a a divine moment mm-hmm. where uh, Joseph is revealing. He said, you people are children. You don't understand. what This is going to go everywhere. It's going to cover the earth. And it's this glorious thing for him. But was that really what happened at that time? Or is this something he heard later on? And that kind of knowledge stream sort of thing happens all the time in history. So it's one of these th- history paradigms that you... You have to be really careful with documents that are not contemporary. I know so that's the, kind of the point. I mean. There's still some more in the back. I'm going, to, I'm going to keep moving forward, and then I'll try to go back to the back again. Gentleman with the Nikon camera. Yeah, I was just wondering about uh, why did Joseph Smith didn't learn anything from the lost 116 pages when you have the only copy of your revelation, you hand it over to a strong-willed, skeptical woman, bad things happen to the document. <laughs> and related to that, between the first version of the revelation and the second version of the revelation, I realize you have to speculate, how much do you think was different between the first version and then she rejects it and the second version? Uh, For the first one, we have to apologize. Don Bradley isn't here. <laughs> right. He is, he yeah, able to 116 pages. But... Uh, yeah, so uh, I think that the copy is a very careful copy. Uh, if you look at the manuscript copy, you'll see that about what is now verse 61 or so, there's a change in the way that it's written. Uh, the writing becomes briefer, words are abbreviated, uh, the script is smaller, uh, something has happened in between that, the beginning of the copying process, and to verse 61, something happens at verse 61. Uh, verse 61 is, well, I'll, I won't go into it. But anyway, it, something happens there. So uh, in the copying process, what has happened? Has he been interrupted? Or did this part come later and it gets inserted? Uh, so that's a puzzling kind of thing. And the content of that part uh, that is copied, that, that gets copied after the first part somehow, uh, has elements in it that are talked about it, talked about later uh, in the upheavals over, over public, polygamy in Nauvoo before Joseph is dead. So probably that is present in the text, even though the handwriting looks much, much different. When the copyist later on, when, when there's Supreme Court hearings over uh, the state of... Uh, of Utah property, his church property, 
Supreme Court testimony. Joseph Kingsbury gives a Supreme Court testimony, and in it, he says, "Well, I was." He tells how the process worked, how he was copying. I got the, I got the Clayton's copy. I start copying it down. When I get nearly to the end, Hiram comes in the other room and gets my boss, Neil Whitney, and says, "Look, is it done yet? I need it back." And uh, so. King, so Whitney comes in and says, well, are you finished with it yet? What's taking you? And he says, yeah, I'm almost done. Then he goes back, and, and maybe because of that, he's in a hurry. Okay, So that may account for the change in script, ways of abbreviating things, using ampersands instead of and, which he never does, and that kind of thing. So that might be the explanation. Christina. Um, thank you so much for writing this book. I'm really interested in reading it. Um, I was kind of briefly looking at um, the part about the legacy of the doctrine, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to um, the infamous follow-up revelation, 1886 revelation, and what your take is on that and how it fits into your framework for this. Okay. You, you want me to repeat that for the microphone? Okay, so... Uh, she wants to put you on the spot about the infamous 1886 John Taylor revelation and your feelings on that. To be yeah. fair, she asks everybody that question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether you could call it infamous. It really forms a pattern. Okay, there's uh, John Taylor uh, d- delivers dictates a, a bunch of revelations. This probably is one. Uh, Wilford Rudolph does the same thing. And they're all directed toward, not completely, but a lot of them are directed toward this idea of polygamy as being a permanent permanent institution. It is not going away. Uh, Taylor, I don't think, would have ever, well, it's hard to say, but I think his attitude seems to have been in concrete by this time. He is not going to give an inch. People are saying, why can't we just, like, do polygamy in Mexico no, we're not giving an inch on this. This is this is what the church is. We call him we, the action figure prophet. If there was an action figure for Mormon fundamentals, that would be him. Taylor is very bound, scripture bound guy. He's one of the uh, he's one of the leaders in this process of going to the written word as authoritative as as opposed to what's said over the pulpit or whatever. Uh, so the the canonized word it becomes strengthened in Taylor's view. Taylor, Brigham Young once asked Taylor to tell him about what he thought about Brigham's calling extra counselors in the first presidency. And Taylor goes through this long dissertation, about eight, nine pages. He goes through the revelations and says, this and this and this and this is why you shouldn't be doing that. The written text is very important for him. And that he adds to that it's not canonized, but he adds to this, is, is an important, uh, uh, almost a shibboleth to him. He's, you know, this, it identifies what's really important. So, so yeah, he's, this, I think this tail end thing that surfaces later it, from evidently 1886, it fits into the whole pattern of, of what he's done before. So I don't, I don't think it... She really wants to ask is when are they going to canonize that in our doctrine and covenant? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> but, but just quickly to follow that up, I think Bill, uh, it's safe to say that that nobody at the time really thought that polygamy is going to be permanently gone from 
from from the church, right? Yeah, the interpretation that, that really of, comes later, like Lorenzo right. Snow period, right? The, the interpretation of the of the manifesto was at the time, at least it's the way the apostles were talking about it, is that this is a temporary glitch. It's going to come back somehow. Maybe we'll have to have concubines first or something secretive kind of thing, uh, uh, something like that. But but it's gonna it's you know it's bound to come back. You know it's a commandment it can't go away. Uh, gradually, as those guys die, like Baron and Mal, these, these guys that are uh, thinking in this mode, uh, and other people that are convinced by circumstances, they believe that this is this is the end of that practice until the eschaton. You know, there's they're pushing it back to the end of the world, and even Bruce R. McConkie, right? He writes that this is this is a practice that will come back in the end of the world. Um, okay, so I guess we'll move back. I saw a couple other hands here uh, in blue shirt yeah. with the cool glasses. <laughs> um, so I had a question you'd said earlier, which I really like that unless it's written, it's not codified, so it doesn't persist. Something that isn't written, but it's kind of alluded to, is this law of adoption that Wilfred Woodruff then kind of, you know, jettisons. Do you have any comments on that, that concept of adoption? I'm just going to try to repeat a little bit here for the microphone. So asking about the unwritten, really, uh, law of adoption, which never became canonized, um, and I don't know, perhaps what you're alluding to is that that's part of the reason why maybe it... Yeah. No, didn't continue being practiced. Uh, but what are your comments on the law of adoption that wasn't part of the revelation? Uh, it was a good. It sounded good at the beginning. It sounded really good because of this tension about the end of the world. When that tension goes away, uh, a lot of people thought that when the manifesto was issued, that that was a sign of the end of the world. The angels were going to come and reap the earth. Uh, because of this prophecy, right? The 85 years old and, and I'll see Jesus. They're thinking about this prophecy as really the end of the world still. And, of course, it doesn't happen. But, uh, uh, but yeah, it's, it, adoption, is, it sounds good, but it becomes really complicated. Okay? So if you get adopted to somebody, and it turns into a bit of a competition, too. So... Who do you want to be adopted to? Well, not John D. Lee. You want to be adopted to Joseph Smith. Uh, it was Brigham Young, one of Brigham Young's wives. You know, she said, look, I, I don't want to be married to you. I want to divorce you, and I want to be married to Joseph. It's a more of a sure thing. <laughs> uh, the same thing took place with adoption. So adoption was a, was, a, was a powerful motif for people to think about when the end of the world was on its way. But when that tension left, adoption wasn't really terribly important. Now, the, the, the end of the world is pushed off to the very distant future, which it still is, right? So, so, the, uh, so this, the motivation or the strength of the idea has diminished. And, and the, all the complication that ensues, right? Uh, even early guys say, like John Pack, he says... I, I am not going to be sealed to Brigham Young or Orson Pratt or something like just because their salvation is sure. I want to be sealed to my dad. And I want his dad to be sealed to his dad, his mom to be sealed to, you know, so, so far. I want, it, I want that to start for me and go on, not take this shortcut that's supposed to be, supposed to be you know, save us from the, 
that what will happen at the end of the world if we're not connected to the end point. All right. Oh, we got more questions. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm just going to do these last two, if we can do that, uh, Claire, and then and then we'll get to you after that. Um, Claire, why don't you come on up, because I know you speak quietly, so you can speak into the microphone. Uh, yeah, sometimes I'm quiet, sometimes <laughs> not. Um, yeah, Bill, this was very interesting, and I wanted to see what you thought, how solid the case is that Emma, that Joseph Smith had a revelation that Emma should have a plural husband. Is that a solid case, or is that a... Is that kind of stretching things? What do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, that plays into this section of the book about the secret of Emma. Because there's a bit in the Revelation that's been puzzling for forever. Uh, verse 51 about don't do, Emma's told not to do what she was commanded to do or what told to do or something. And so all kinds of speculation developed about that. Was she supposed to commit suicide? Was uh, she supposed to marry somebody else, or did she have permission to marry somebody else? I think my personal opinion is that it didn't have anything to do with any of that. It was all about di divorce. So I think they were on the verge of splitting. And the splitting part is really important because after the revelation is delivered, the next day, right, Joseph and Emma are having this very tearful conversation about this very issue. Do we stay together? And, uh, and Joseph tells his clerk to deed a lot of stuff to em in Emma's name. And so that she will, she's worried, right? This polygamy thing is really, she sees the handwriting on the wall. Is this gonna be the, this gonna cause us to have to get out of town again? Are we going to be killed over that kind of thing when we have to exit? And she sees this. And so she's kind of the prophet here. And, uh, and Joseph says, apparently, this is what I think. I think he said, okay, I'll give you, you know, I'll kind of set you up. The kids will be safe. That's what she's really worried about. And, uh, and we'll divorce. You can have a divorce. Well, I think the revelation is saying, no. Don't do that. And that, that's actually kind of wise counsel, but because divorce is a very, very problem, problematic thing in, at that period. And state laws about divorce, you know, when you get frustrated or something or angry, it, that looks like a way out. At this time, no. That, the divorce law was very tricky, that, especially for women. You had to prove a lot more than men did. So, and Emma would end up having to prove that anyway. Right. Yeah, and, that's true. And after Joseph dies, she's in a financial quandary because <clears throat> Joseph's estate is mixed with the church. There was good reason for that because of the way, uh, the way uh, institutional property could be held. Mm -hmm. it was, it was, there, was a, there was a short dollar limit on how institutions could hold property. Churches couldn't hold a lot of dollar value property. So deeding things to persons was a way to keep it in the family, so to speak. Okay. That's a really complicated story. One last question. Um, my question isn't quite as academic as everybody else's. It's just more a matter of curiosity, I think. Um, I found it interesting when you said that Hiram made a suggestion to Joseph that he gets a revelation to convince Emma um, to agree to the concept 
of plural marriage because whenever I have read that, I've always thought that that section sounded incredibly self-serving to Joseph and like, it's just obvious. It's like, like how could anybody even believe that? And then especially when it's like they say, well, let's give Emma a project and tell her and distract her and, and tell her to put together a hymn book so that she'll feel like she has something to do. Um, and I know that you said that some revelations came when people asked questions. I know that some people have had dreams and have later dictated them and they've become canon. My question is, is how exactly did the dictation process happen? You said that Joseph and, was it William Clayton, that they had worked on it for about? I mean, did they pray and write? Did they pray and write? Did Joseph go into a trance? I mean, how did, how did these happen? Did he start channeling the words of God? I mean... Okay, so essentially your question is, is what was the process of creating the actual revelation? Uh, whether it was the mechanical process yes, of creating Yes, the mechanical process. Okay, all right. Okay, so my answer is partly problematic because of the way the records exist. So there are some contemporary records about the process, and there are some that were written uh, in, as reminiscence. So I'm going to just be the bad historian and sort of combine all this. So, so I think that uh, the... That probably what happened is that, and this is the story Clayton tells later on, is that Joseph already knows this revelation. Uh, he's just going to dictate it in full. And there's some evidence for this because parts of the revelation appear to be in the in the in the minds of people that are sort of in the inner circle of things, like Heber Kimball. So he quotes a little bit from the te- what, uh, what looks like the text of the Revelation before the Revelation is given. And he references this. He's, talking, he's writing a letter to his wife, I think, or in his diary. I can't remember which one it was. But, uh, but it sounds like he's quoting a bit from the Revelation, you know, being gods, that kind of thing. Uh, the language is like that. So... May is a big May of eighteen forty three is a big month for polygamy and sealing. So um, Emma is sealed to Joseph in May. Uh, she lets Joseph take other wives. Uh, at that point, uh, it's, she sours on it right after that. All the circumstances are tricky, but but yeah. That, so I think the. So, you know the language of the revelation is present. Some of it is present in the m- milieu of sealing and these practices that are happening polygamy uh, uh, in you know before earlier in that year. And then uh, when it's set down in writing, uh, parts of that come into it uh, when. Uh, William Clayton mentions that what if it what if it gets destroyed? Joseph says it doesn't matter. This is late later, but it doesn't matter because I know it by heart. It's already in my mind. I can put it down again if we need. Can I can I add just one thing to that? What I appreciate about this answer is that I think it doesn't reduce Emma's reaction to just sexual jealousy. It shows that Emma is contemplating all of these other issues 
the implications of this, and it's not just that she's jealous, you know, although certainly that. That's a powerful part of it, yeah. yeah. To, to add one more little detail, uh, the mechanics, um, and this was a later reminiscence as well, but it was asked to Joseph if he needed his seer stone to be able to create the revelation, and he said no. I, I don't need it. The fact that Bill said that it took about three hours for them to work on this tells me that it probably wasn't a stream of consciousness type of dictation, um, or else it probably would have been shorter than that. Because it's, I mean, it's it's a significant number of verses, but it doesn't certainly doesn't take three hours to write that many verses um, if it's just stream of consciousness. So that's just indications to me that it was probably thought about a little bit as they were putting it down. Intentional. Yeah, intentional. All right, well, um, thank you. You guys have been a great group here today. And for Lindsay for doing the podcast. She's awesome. And a hand for Bill.